The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult themes, language, violence, and sexual situations. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? All the lights out. Welcome back to the Conspiracy Podcast, where we talk about uh, some spooky things. I'm sorry. Yeah. Are you feeling okay? Yes. I just want. <laughs> well, to there's see been how a glitch in the a- matrix. <laughs> there's a glitch in Renee. Some crimey, whimey, miney things. What the fuck things. is happening? I think I gotta go. <laughs> Uh, true crime, Renee's basement. Anyway, speaking of Renee's basement, that's me. I'm Renee. Hi, um, I'm Liz, and I just want everyone to know that apparently Renee has been uh, pulling weird, mysterious murder supplies from her garage. So if this is the last time you hear from me, I am here. <laughs> they don't know where here is. It's like it's like in Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf and you're the neighbor who's pulling shit out of your garage and I'm Rihanna you know and me and Katie are Shia LaBeouf and the really hot blonde girl yep, that's yep. us <laughs> yep because Rihanna just pops up when he's looking out his window with the binoculars she's like Disturbia yeah. and that darkness the best night. part of that whole entire film that cinematic masterpiece <laughs> that is Disturbia. I, I watched it so many times. When so it did came I. To, is when they're like trying, when Shia LaBeouf is trying to disrupt the party that she's having. And mm-hmm. so he plugs in those really loud speakers and it's like, la, 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 that part wasn't me that was our third host that was me as always blady yeah i'm glad you remember that i do glady (laughs) keep it going Uh, baby sorry i said blady god uh zadie when you move to the Pacific Northwest, you can change your name to Zadie. We're not moving there anymore. Wait, what? Okay, when you don't move to the Pacific Northwest and you stay here with me forever, you can still change your name to Zadie. We're going to move to Vermont. And live in Bernie Sanders' front yard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all put tiny houses in Papa Bernie's lawn. Be Bernie, like, hey you- guys! Bernie, I thought you were a communist! <laughs> Just kidding. He's not. I, I'm a smart person. I know he's not a communist. I'm a smart person. I understand the difference between communism and democratic socialism, probably because I myself am a socialist. Please don't come and get me, Trump. Anyway, I'd know like where to see you try. Going, so it doesn't even matter. Mm-hmm. I've been watching Love is Blind. Why? Kat and I almost watched that. Why? Oh my, because it's incredible. Ew. No. It's incredible. It looks so. It's. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> it's incredible. She's like, it's a masterpiece. It needs to win all the awards next awards season. No, 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 not like that. It's just really fun when you yeah. feel like your life is falling apart to watch everyone else act like idiots on television. It's a de-stressor. Like a uh, cat and I just finished watching Orange Is the New Black. Finally, I, hate oh the, my I God. hated the last like three seasons of that show. Oh my God! 
I mean, pretty much when, spoiler alert, this is like four years when old. When died? Yeah, I was going to say, after Pusey died, I was pretty much <gasps> like. got her back in the last season. I cried. I did Can too. I tell you, I cried from the moment she was on the screen until the scene was over. I was just like a big dumb baby. And then, uh, oh God, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, but uh, her real name, but Tasty, when she sings that song. Mm. I oh cried. Cat and I, the whole like the final like four or five episodes, Cat and I were like, listen, <laughs> we need some happy endings here. It's been like seven years. If Tasty kills herself, we sorry, spoiler alert. Um, she doesn't. Like, we're done. Oh, yeah, I don't the... I don't care how I don't care what else happens after it. We're done. The last season was like they were like you expected everybody to like have these big like yeah they did so great and then everything just was so shitty. Yeah. I'm literally the most obsessed with Nichols is um, Natasha Leone right? Yes. I would do anything (laughs) and I really mean anything on this planet to just like hug her. She's amazing. Naked. She's amazing. Didn't they didn't they not finish Maritza's is her name Maritza? She got deported. Maritza? Right, but they didn't like, like, yeah. we don't know was... what exactly, like, we get that she, but yeah, they, they almost left her. it like she wasn't going to, though. So it's like, what happened? And then I nothing. I cried so much. I cried so much. Jane. I was, I was kind of upset that they, that they let it, left it so open-ended. Because, like, Maritza is kind of a bitchy character, but, like. So what happened to Piper wanted... and um, that 70s show? That's all I want to know. She, stay, happen to she stays with her. Yeah, she does. Oh, like, they stay she, together? Yes. She tries to have sex with a man. Then she tries to have sex with a woman, yes. right? And then she has a deep friendship, which kind of turns into a relationship with this amazing lesbian who has a fantastic apartment and a great job and has mm. her life together and is interested in Piper. Oh, yeah, that's right. apparently nobody can spend more than 15 seconds with Piper without wanting to get in her pants. Well, then she runs into her ex and her ex best friend who have a child. She didn't know. No, she didn't run into them. She called them and was like, hey, do you want to have dinner? That won't be awkward. And then, like, instead of going with, instead of growing as a character and realizing that she should leave this stuff behind, she moves to fucking Ohio so she can be with Alex. Moves up to, to Ohio. To I can't wait though for somebody to be like, but it's all based on a true story, guys. You can't get mad. Season one was based on a true story. I know, but you know, idiots. It. Whenever the oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, people. If you believe Orange Is the New Black from season two on is still based on that story, you're not an idiot. You just you were just misled. You were sure. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, you were misled. First season, yes, true story. Some of it. Not all of it. Yeah, the real Piper Kerman is back married to the husband she was with before she went to jail. Right. So, anyways, oh yeah, my whole point of bringing that up. <laughs> my I was whole like, wait, point who of are we? That up is uh, Fig when uh, Figarello. Uh, yes, <laughs> I think her name actually is Figarello because um, her she? and Caputo are together. Oh yeah, and she like. Every night when he comes home, she's watching trashy reality TV, and he's like, why do you watch this stuff? And she's like, I'm... Is that what he said? Just like that? Why do you watch, watch this, this stuff? stuff? That's my... It's close. They call me Soda Can. <laughs> See? I'm basically him. Um, True. <laughs> he's like, why do you watch this? And she's like, she's like, I had a bad day at work. I need their perfect sweaty bodies to soothe me and um, make this bad day go away. So I get it. So let's talk about some tea. So since we are um, talking about something that mostly happened during the summertime, um, we decided to drink some tea called Capri. It's very summery. And not Capri Sun, like Liz does with her tequila. (laughs) (laughs) Dale, yeah. (laughs) More like Capri Pants. Or Capri Italy. No. It's kind of like Capri Sun. Capri Sun happens in the summer. It is. Oh, my God. It's just not. It doesn't taste. It tastes like an adult Capri Sun. It tastes. That's my kind of Capri Sun. Well, let me tell them (laughs) what it tastes like. Like a a Capri, an adult Capri Sun. A Caprila. Yes. Not a a (laughs) (laughs) So the ingredients are Turkish apple, rosehip shells, peppermint, Thai pineapple, melon pieces, pear pieces, you know what's funny is I really do taste like all of that. Yeah. 
It tastes like honeydew melon, wildflower honey, and peppermint. Wow. Which, yes, I actually do taste the honeydew melon, okay, with a hint of coconut oil. There's nothing wrong with it tasting like coconut oil. And it feels like sunbathing <laughs> on a sailboat, which, yes, I get that. It's like, you know. A sailboat. Oh, yeah. I like to sunbathe on my sailboat. <laughs> yep. Her inflatable pool. <laughs> Renee, do you want to tell the kids what we're talking about? Do you want me to, or do you do you want to? Since you're starting, well, I guess I could. Do you guys want to know? Yeah, yeah. Are you sure you want to know? No. Don't tell the kids; they're gonna get murdered. Oh, true. I guess it is the Atlanta child murders. The Atlanta murders of 1979 to 1981, also known more popularly as the Atlanta child murders were a series of murders committed in Atlanta between July and May 1979 1981, like I said. So, um, over this two-year period, at least 28 children, adolescents, and adults were killed. People think this story has a relatively easy ending with the murderer being captured. But is it that easy? Is it? Is it? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start briefly with the convicted. Um, Katie is going to touch like way more on him, but I'll just let you know that his name uh, is Wayne Williams, and he was an Atlanta native who was 23 years old at the time of the last murder. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of two of the adult murders and sentenced to two consecutive life terms. Now, I would just like to say that at 23, yeah. I don't think I could have killed all those people. No. No, that takes a lot of gumption. And just a lot of effort. Yes. Like, you have nothing better to do in your early 20s. A lot of people are convinced, including myself, I'm not sure about my uh, colleagues here, that Wayne Williams did not act alone or did not act in these cases at all. So, um, they have attributed him many of the child murders to him. Um, even though he has not ever been officially charged in any of those cases, and he still maintains to this day that he is innocent, which is interesting because the killings ceased after his arrest. So, I'm not sure what. But did they? They can still, I mean, they have still tied crimes after he was arrested. Yeah, that's true. Um, what I find to be the most interesting is that we are recording this in March 2020, and in March 2019, um, the Atlanta mayor reopened the case. Mrs. Just, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Did y'all know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in, I talk about it a little bit. Oh, well, excuse me. In the middle of 1979, uh, Edward Hope Smith, also known as Teddy, and Alfred Evans, also known as Q, both aged 14, disappeared four days apart. Um, there was another person that went missing, uh, Terry who lived in the same apartment as Smith, which I found really interesting, like, years mm -hmm. later. Their bodies were found on July 28th in a wooded area, uh, Smith with a 22 caliber gunshot wound in his upper back. They were believed to be the first victims of the Atlanta child killer. I don't know why I gave it that voice, but... It sounds very American Most Wanted. I love it. Keep it. Thank you. On September 4th, the next victim, 14-year-old Milton Harvey, disappeared while on an errand to the bank for his mother. I bet she feels guilty. He was riding a yellow 10-speed bike, which was found a week later in a remote area of Atlanta. His body was not recovered until November of that year. I always feel bad when I hear stories like that. Like, the parents like, oh, will you run to the store and grab some bread for me? Or... Don't come in the house yet. You should be going and playing with your friends. And then the kid gets abducted. And you're like, oh. I have a lot of victims to get through, unfortunately. On October 21st, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell went to a store to buy um, brew tin snuff for a neighbor, Miss Eula Birdsong, which, by the way, is the best name of all time. Mm -hmm. Eula mm -hmm. Birdsong. Are you kidding? I'm going to change my name to that. Don't worry. It should be a drag name. It should be a drag Or a cat name. Yes. Yeah. Or my name. <laughs> a witness said that she saw Yusuf near the intersection of McDaniel and Fulton getting into a blue car before he disappeared. His body was found on November 8th in the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School by a janitor who was looking for a place to pee. <laughs> 
did they really have to give that part out? I know. <laughs> I know. Bell's yeah, body was found clothed in the brown cutoff shorts he was last seen wearing, though they had a piece of masking tape stuck to them. He had been hit over the head twice, and the cause of death was strangulation. Police did not immediately link his disappearance to the previous killings. So now we're going to go into 1980. Um, so those were the killings that we know about in 79. Um, so as for 1980, um, on March 4th, 1980, the first female victim, 12-year-old Angel Lanier, disappeared. She left her house around 4 p.m. wearing a denim outfit and was last seen at a friend's house watching the TV program Sanford and Son, which is a great show. Oh, God, I love me some Red Fox. Lanier's body was found six days later in a wooded vacant lot among uh, Campbellton Road, wearing the same clothes in which she had left home. A pair of white panties that did not belong to Lanier were stuffed in her mouth, and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. The cause of death was strangulation. Ooh. So it's it's like different methods, because like one kid was found Same result, shot. different methods, yeah. Yes. On March 11th, one week after Lanier's disappearance, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while on an errand for his mother. He was wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. Months later, a girl said she saw him get into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. That's important. The body of Jeffrey Mathis was found in a briar-covered patch of woodland 11 months after he disappeared, by which time it was not possible to identify the cause of death. It's so creepy. I know. On May 18th, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared. He was last seen answering the telephone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle, taking with him a hammer to repair the bicycle. His body was found the following day next to the bike in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. The bar was located next door to what was then the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. His pockets were turned inside out, his chest and arms had slight stab wounds, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. A few weeks before he disappeared, Millbrooks had testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. So, as far as that one goes, there's a lot of speculation. Like, his death, in my opinion, is the farthest out from everyone's. Like, yeah. he was just, like, in the like, the back of some building with, like, some stab wounds and like, got hit in the head. And he had just, like, ratted out some people. So... Yeah, so his, like, may or may not be connected to the wholesale thing, it, but it definitely fits the M.O. of what was For happening. For sure. Yeah, and it, it seems very timely. So it could be that he ratted out people and he was punished for it, or that could be just, like, a convenient way to explain away his death. <clears throat> we still don't know because nobody has ever been charged. Which is so wild. It's, I can't even talk about it. Um, on June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. He was last seen walking towards the DeKalb County Midway Recreation Center in Midway Park. He was wearing blue shorts, a light blue shirt, and blue tennis shoes. His body was not found until the following January, which is crazy, and he was clothed in unfamiliar swim trunks along with the body of later victims Earl Terrell... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Clothed in unfamiliar swim trunks, along with the body of a later victim, Earl Terrell. The cause of Richardson's death was not able to be determined. Ooh. Yeah. See, that's weird. Was it not determined, or did they just, like, not? Well, his body wasn't found for almost half a year, like, a whole, like, eight months. That's true. That's a lot of decay. It's outside. And it was in the summer, and so gross. it was gross. in the 70s. That's true. They didn't so, have the skills we have now. It's, like, eerie hearing, like, all the kids and what they were wearing and, like, where they were going and what they were, like, what they were set out to do. Like, at first, I was just going to, like, list the names and ages. And then I was, like, no. I feel like it's, like, eerier mm-hmm. when you, like, give everyone their own little justice. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latanya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. According to a witness, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Wilson in his arms 
as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. On October 18th, Wilson's body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Urbina Street in Atlanta. By then, the body had skeletonized, and no cause of death could be established. That's insane that it took so long for them to find this body. A few of them. Mm -hmm. The very next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weich disappeared after having been seen near a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevrolet with either one or two black men. A female witness says she saw him being led from Tanner's Corner Grocery by a six-foot-tall, 180-pound black male, approximately 30 years old, with a mustache and a goatee. The witness's description of the car matched the description of a similar car implicated in an earlier disappearance. At 6 p.m., she was seen in a shopping center. The following day, her body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death was asphyxiation from a broken neck. Oh, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Who was found under a bridge? Um, Aaron Weich. Oh, okay. I thought you said she, and I was like, oh, God, a female witness? No, Weich's body. Oh, okay. Cut that out. Um, so to finish off 1980, um, in July, two more children, Anthony Carter and Earl Terrell, were murdered. Between August and November 1980, five more killings took place. All of the victims were African-American children between the ages of 7 and 14, and most were killed via asphyxiation. So, mm. and then last but not least, 1981, the murders continued, um, and the first known victim in this new year was Luby Geeter who disappeared on January 3rd, and the body was found on February 5th. Geeter's friend Terry Pugh also went missing in January. An anonymous caller told the police where to find the body. In February and March, six more bodies were discovered, believed to be linked to the previous homicides. Among the dead was the first adult victim, Eddie Duncan. Which is weird. Like, why would you just kill kids for two years? And then you're like, hey. Escalating. I guess. Um, in April 20th. If it was one person. I, true. Well, yeah, but just like, there's more than one. But like, how? I, I feel like that's just not like a natural escalation. I yeah. don't know why. I feel like if you want to kill kids, you want to kill kids. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, most people definitely have like. A thing. Yes. Yeah. So, I don't know. I thought that was strange. That's why, well, we'll get to it later, but that's why I have my theories. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. In April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers, 28-year-old John Porter, and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were murdered. Porter and Payne were ex-convicts and had just recently been released from Arendelle State Prison after serving time for burglary. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old Billy Starr Barrett on a curb in a wooded area near his home. A witness, 32-year-old Harold Wood, a custodian from Southwest High School, had run out of gas about a mile from the scene. Wood described a black man standing over and observing the location where the body was found before driving away in a white-over-blue Cadillac. Mmm... During the end of May 1981, the last reported victim was added to the list, 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter. He was last seen by the gardener, Robert I. Henry, at the entrance of the Rialto in Atlanta, reportedly holding hands with Wayne Williams. His body was discovered hours later. Um, Investigator Chet Detlinger created a map of the victim's locations. Despite the difference in ages, the victims fell within the same geographic parameters. They were connected to Memorial Drive and 11 major streets in that area. Um, so as you can imagine, I feel like if this started happening today, where, like, kid after kid goes missing all within, like, a mile of each other... Yeah, it's like, pretty scary. People would go nuts. Exactly. Like, especially with social media... When I was researching, I was thinking, like, what would happen if this happened, like, today? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I just can't imagine like how crazy the people would act if like all these kids were like going missing. Well, we had something similar to that a few years ago when all the girls were going missing around New York City. Oh, that's true. And it true. was like a media frenzy. So that's true. That's just true. Imagine the 1970s version of that. Well, that, yeah, for real. So, during the murders, more than 100 FBI agents, not even, in, in, like, including the police officers, mm-hmm. just 100 FBI agents were working on the investigation. The city of Atlanta imposed curfews, and parents in the city removed their children from school, forbade them from playing outside, would not let them go um, in the store by themselves, be in the car by themselves. Basically, like, nobody was leaving their kids' mm-hmm. side at all, which I don't blame them. Yeah. It, like, ruined these kids' summers. You know? Like, imagine- if I was a kid, like, imagine if, like, your friend got kidnapped and was, like, killed. It's terrifying. You'd never be the same. Yeah. Like, that's wild. So, so the media coverage of the killings intensified. Um, and as that happened, the FBI predicted that the killer might dump the next victim into a body of water to conceal any evidence. Police staked out nearly a dozen area bridges, including crossings of the Chattahoochee River, which I work at, like, I work, like, right by the main entrance to the Chattahoochee, where, like, in Roswell. Oh, yeah. Where they have, like, that park or whatever. I've been on kayaking there. Yeah. And then on my way home... Um, I, like, literally drive along the Chattahoochee on, like, mm-hmm. Willeo and the Azalea, so I see, like, mm-hmm. all the entrances, and I'm just like, oh, that's so weird. I was thinking yeah. about today. During a stakeout on May 22nd, 1981, detectives got their first major break when an officer heard a splish. I don't know why I wrote splish. splish? Like a splish splash. I love it. I splish love splash. it. He was not taking a bath. He was dead. Um, <laughs> Okay. I'll start that over. <laughs> During a stakeout on May 22nd, 1981, detectives got their first major break when an officer heard a splash beneath the bridge. Another officer saw a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon turn around and drive back across the bridge. Dun, dun, dun. Two police cars later stopped the suspect's station wagon about a half a mile from the bridge. Who was the driver, you might ask? Who was the driver? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you asked, Renee. You're welcome. It was 23-year-old Wayne Williams, a supposed music promoter and freelance photographer. Freelance photographer just means that you find, like, new ways to trick women to pose nude at your home. (laughs) That's true. Um, Police did not find any record of her or the appointment. Two days later, on May 24th, the nude body of Nathaniel Carter... Uh, 27, was found floating downriver a few miles from the bridge where the police had seen the suspicious station wagon. Based on this evidence, including the police officer's hearing of the splash, (laughs) police believed that Williams had killed Carter and disposed of his body while the police were nearby. Done. Done. Mm -hmm. Done. Yeah, seems, uh, the timing of it seems very... Coincidental. And um, they still haven't, to this day, they still haven't found Cheryl Johnson. Right. All right, so let's get to know this this man they call Wayne. Wayne Williams lived a pretty normal life. Um, both of his parents were teachers, and Wayne enjoyed radio and DJing in his teenage years. His parents funded and just gave him lots of money to pretty much do whatever he wanted, which I found interesting. He was the only, He was an only child. Mm. Um, so they spoiled the hell out of him, obviously. Of course. Um, Wayne graduated Frederick Douglass High School with an honors degree, and after graduating, he spent a year at Georgia State until he dropped out. I guess it wasn't for him. Georgia when, State sucks. I don't blame yeah. him. Sorry, also, Georgia State listeners. <laughs> you know. When Wayne was 16, he created his own radio station while living with his parents. He was really interested in getting people into the music industry, and he became a scouter for young, talented musicians. Um, He kind of used his radio station to get it out there that he was looking for people. Mm -hmm. Like, even at the age of 16, he also had some guests come on his radio uh, station. Like, he had this whole thing going, and his parents, like I said, helped fund uh, his projects and the radio and all these other ideas that he had. Um, his radio station did end up getting shut down, though, of course, by the well, 
Yeah. The higher is, ups. Is it FCC? Yeah. I yeah. think so. Of course. They shut down everything yeah. good. Well, True. He was also just running the shit through his... <laughs> That's awesome. I know. <laughs> I know, <That's> but... Awesome. <laughs> Hell yeah. He made money also by using a police scanner to get to accidents or fires before the police arrived. He'd take photos, and then he would sell those pictures to newspapers. Oh, he was basically Jake Gyllenhaal from um, Nightcrawler. Yes. Love True. It. <laughs> Love it. Okay. And in one of his first run-ins with the law, Wayne was arrested for impersonating a police officer, which happened in 1976. Okay. So, you know, that was on it. That was the only criminal background that he had, even yeah. though he wasn't even charged with anything. He was just arrested. So talk a little bit about Wayne, but also going to talk about how Atlanta was at the time. Okay. Um, Atlanta at the time of the murders actually had its first African-American mayor, Maynard Jackson. He was mayor from 1973 to 1982. Maynard Jackson of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And the 1970s in Atlanta exactly wasn't a place where poor minorities were thriving. Mm -hmm. Atlanta, like most major cities at the time, had a large poor black population, and getting out of this statistic was hard for the majority of people living in the city at this time. Even though Atlanta had its first African-American mayor, he was popular more so among the white people in the city, and so black people felt betrayed by him. And this whole setup of how the city was at the time, the lack of caring for the poor neighborhoods, and that death was common in poor African-American neighborhoods set the stage for the kidnappings and murders of a long list of African-American children in the heart of Atlanta, which would in turn put Wayne Williams as the main suspect in this case. Mm. Done. Done. Yes. Done. So Liz kind of gave you a little, you know, told you all the victims. And one of the victims, I'm going to kind of jump around here and say th- some things. One of the victims that she talked about was Yusuf Bell. Um, and Yusuf Bell's mother, Camilla Bell, in 1980, took matters into her own hands after being ignored by the Atlanta police when they discovered her son's body abandoned in that elementary school. Um, Eight children had already been murdered at this time, and she was concerned that pretty much not much was moving forward at this, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, even though it had been a year, police really still weren't, they weren't connecting the cases even at that point still. Mm -hmm. They weren't trying to say that it was that big of a deal because, like I said, death was pretty common in those neighborhoods where this was happening. Yeah. So, Bell and other mothers who were also concerned formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murders. Um, This committee raised funds to help parents of the murdered children continue fighting to find the killer, and in return, the state of Georgia charged them with having violated Georgia law as concerned charitable solicitations. Basically saying, all the money you raised was just soliciting, you were going door-to-door, you were just basically asking Mm -hmm. for money for what reason? trying to not make them look bad so they charged her with something wait is that like i've done that before selling your girl scout cookies no selling chocolate bars for my brother's baseball team well you were a child also you're white i guess (laughs) not trying to like but like but yes no like it's it's an obvious I guess, like, my point is, it's an obvious bullshit charge. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. well, it also made the police look bad. Yes. Because all these moms were going out there and getting their voices heard and, like, getting more attention brought to the mm-hmm. case by by saying, we're going to stop all the, you know, we don't want any more children to be murdered. The police yeah. aren't doing much, so we're going to get our no. asses out here and do it. And it made them look bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the truth. Yes. Rightfully so. Yeah. So, Liz told you about Nathaniel Carter um, and how Wayne was basically in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who falls on the side of thinking that Wayne Williams didn't commit all, any, or, you know, not this murder. Who knows? <laughs> so, before Wayne was actually caught that night um, in 1981... An FBI profile created a description of who the killer could possibly be so that they could kind of get it out there. The profile came up with this about who the Atlanta child murderer would be. They said their suspect had an average or above average IQ. They followed media closely to ensure they changed their patterns as to not get caught. They either change employment often or are self-employed. 
They're often the only son of the family. The fact that they thought it was just a man. I mean, come on. Women are crazy. True. Not, I mean, and also, we'll, we'll soon discover and we, we cover women who kill their own children, <laughs> but yeah. not mm. other people's children. Um, you know, well, mm, deadly women chose other. We're just going to say it doesn't always have to be a man, okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> women just are better at not getting caught. That's very true. Under a lot of, uh, they also said the person would be under a lot of stress and angry about where their life was at, which Wayne was still living with his parents, even at the time of his arrest. And he wasn't making as much progress as he wanted to with being his music scout. Um, They're familiar with crime scenes, which Wayne did certain projects and took photos in certain areas Mm -hmm. with musicians and other people near Red Wine Road which that's where the bodies of Christopher Richardson, Earl Terrell, and Milton Harvey were discovered. They were either near or on Red Wine Road. Okay. Um, the suspect is between the ages of 25 and 29, but Wayne was 23 at the time of his arrest for the murders of Nathaniel Carter and Jimmy Ray Payne. Um, so not every child that was kidnapped was murdered. So mm-hmm. there are victims out there. There are, ch- there are people who are now grown adults out there who... And managed to escape. Um, And hold on. What did I do here? Okay, sorry, I confused myself. That's a fun slur. That was. So, one story uh, that I'm going to tell you. You getting comfortable? (laughs) My shoulder just like took my mic out. (laughs) All right, I'm ready. One story I'm going to tell you about um, is from Duran Davis. Um, he, he recounted his whole thing after 40 years. He kind of kept it to himself um, when it happened. But he said in 1979, when he was 14 years old, Davis was walking near Campbellton Road, heading to catch a bus so he could get to work at Greenbrier Skating Rink. As Davis was walking, a car pulled up next to him, and the driver was a man with an afro and big glasses. The driver asked Davis for directions and then proceeded to ask if he wanted a ride to work. Davis accepted. Davis then says the small talk between him and the man driving began making him uncomfortable. The man went from asking Davis about his girlfriends to saying how Davis must have a big dick. Which the man proceeded to reach over and try to grab Davis's penis. At this point, Davis elbowed the man in the face and jumped out of the car. He never talked about the incident to anybody. Young men and boys had already been disappearing in the city for over a year now, and he didn't want to worry his mother and father and other people, his friends and family members. When Davis saw they made an arrest in the murder cases, he realized he recognized the man being charged with the murders, and that man was Wayne Williams. The man who gave Davis a ride that day in 1979. And that same July day, which he can't really remember when it happened, but he was like... July 21st is what he thinks is the day. Um, Edward Teddy Smith went missing, leaving the same skating rink Davis worked at. And Davis recalls people looking for Teddy hours after he escaped from William's car. And one week later, as Liz said, his body was discovered. He had been shot in the head. And Davis has always wondered, what if I got away in time? Mm-hmm. So, Such a scary thing. Yeah. And he's so, he, like, he's so, every time he sees Wayne Williams, he's like, that is the man. That's mm-hmm. the man who who Mm-mm. who tried to do what he did to me. Yeah. Um, there are a couple more victims of the Atlanta child murderer who escaped, and they have ident- identified Williams as the man they encountered as well. Um, he didn't seem like a man who would turn e- ugly or evil. They trusted him, and that's what Williams knew. He knew he could get these young boys to trust him. He was in their neighborhood. He was a black man. And he looked normal. Mm-hmm. He was good at manipulating young boys. They lived in rough neighborhoods, and it was also the 70s, you know. It was a little more easygoing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah. Um, and this is just my little side note before I turn it over to you. Yeah. Um, what doesn't match to me, and kind of what keeps people wondering if they have the right guy, are the two murders that Wayne Williams has officially been charged with, which were Nathaniel Carter and Jimmy Ray Payne. As Liz said... He has never been charged with any of the children, child murders in throughout the city of Atlanta. And the 
age difference between the fact that the other victims ranged in ages between seven years old and 14, and then Carter and Payne were 27 and 21, just doesn't match up as to why. If they're trying to pinpoint this on one person and it being Mm -hmm. Wayne Williams, unless he wanted to get caught and he was just like, because you know how some serial killers out there, I mean... That's kind of what, like, That's Ted true. Bundy did. I mean, like, like showboating. they don't, mm-hmm. like, they do it for so long, they can't stop. So they, they're they like, I'm either going to get caught or I'm just going to keep doing this. Yeah. So unless he wanted to get caught, why would he choose victims that were older in the later years of the murders? Um, parents became very fearful. They were keeping a closer eye on their kids. And um, honestly, I think it was... Not all Wayne Williams who murdered these kids and these teens. I agree. It the ages between the stuff and also like that's so many fucking kids to murder and to get away with it for so long. Yeah. Well, right. it is. <laughs> Be- before I delve into it, it is super fucking shady. What the the city? What well, what Atlanta? did to Wayne Williams is basically they charged him for these two murders formally and then they were able to mention 10 of the murders during the trial. Mm -hmm. So in a way, even though he wasn't being formally charged for them, they were able to... They aired it all out. Mm -hmm. Yes. They were able to mention them and draw attention to them and indirectly make it seem like he was guilty of those as well. So very shady. Don't trust the police don't trust the police say this all the don't time. trust the police they're not they're not here for you they're not here for you anyways so as katie said and as many people believe uh wayne williams did did not necessarily commit all of the murders and if he didn't commit all of them who might have participated in some of the other ones most of the information I'm going to be talking about is based off of an article which appeared in the alternative music magazine Spin in the year 1986. Ooh. Right? I was like, Spin? But then I read it and I was like, okay, this is actually really good. Because <laughs> I used to read Spin back in my cool days. Um, anyways, the article examined... You had alt- those? Whoa. I used to be, I used to be um, very cool. She hasn't always been a grandma. The article in Spin examined an alternative theory about who really committed a majority of the Atlanta child murders. And I also used coverage based, um, sorry, I also used coverage by 11 Alive during 2019 after Keisha Lance Bottoms reopened the case. So, like Liz said. That was me. so long ago. God, I can't remember. So much has happened since then. <clears throat> I know. So many topics. Anyways, according to papers which were available in 1986 and were also uncovered by 11 Alive. So while the task force investigated the Atlanta child murders, and this was the one Katie talked about, that was the APD plus these FBI agents. There was another high-level and secret investigation which discovered and covered up the fact that a Ku Klux Klan family may have been responsible for the murder of at least one of the victims and was possibly linked to the murders of 14 others. Wow. In an attempt to ignite a race war between blacks and whites. So while during the main investigation, um, the police and FBI agents were scouring ghettos, homosexual haunts, like my house, mm-hmm. and psychiatric wards, like my house, according to <laughs> <laughs> according to the testimony of informants who were in the know at the time and involved in clan activity, members of a certain family in the backwoods just outside of Atlanta were carrying out a plan to execute one black boy each month while arming themselves with high-powered rifles, fragmentation grenades, and various disguises for the urban war that they were creating. Investigators began to process more information on various claverns, which I've just found out is apparently the name for, like, a clans group. I guess it's like a portmanteau of Mm -hmm. clan and tavern. Isn't that fun? I mean, it would be fun if it wasn't the Ku Klux Klan. (laughs) Among the groups they were investigating were the National States Rats Party. 
Um, white people. Right. The new order of the Ku Klux Klan. White people. Um, which a man named Charles Sanders and several members of his family belonged. One of five Klan groups active in the state of Georgia, the National States Rats Parties, was small but rapidly building due mostly to the strong advocacy of violence. Because this was the 70s and the civil rights movement had recently been passed and some white people were real mad. I mean, hadn't it only been like 14 years since the Jim Crow laws, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And desegregation and all that stuff mm-hmm. that made them very exactly. mad. Um, George Wallace was still in power at this point. Mm-hmm. So Yikes. this particular party drew the more vicious members of other groups, and it was the most active clavern in Atlanta. Clan <laughs> leaders in this group promised a race war, which they said was coming in 1981, and urged their members to arm themselves. Uh, according to Special Agent Daryl Adams, uh, training camps for Klansmen were being set up to teach them guerrilla warfare. These, a close-knit group of investigators, were sure that the extremely volatile racial situation in Atlanta was about to explode. I mean, this was the 70s. They feared if the Klan investigation was turned over to the main task force, which was plagued by leaks, people were constantly finding out details about it and how bad it was going uh the news of the clan's role in killing of black children would lead to a war in the streets of atlanta so all these people involved um phil peters director of the gbi uh, major griner which i think that's his actual name a couple <laughs> of inspectors basically a bunch of white dudes deciding the fate of atlanta they decided that they were going to keep this hush hush so Griner had res- honestly hold on side note the KKK was never good at keeping anything hush hush like, no they're very they loud they like, were like let's be secretive in the woods but with a fire and a huge fire we're all gonna be wearing these you know white robes on our hands so if someone <laughs> walks into the woods in the middle of the night with this huge fire they'll they can't see us Mm-mm. it's like no we're ghosts y'all were loud Y'all mm-hmm. were stupid. Y'all, I mean, I say were, oh, well, no, but the KKK, you're still no, the K, No, the um, KKK weren't trying to keep this a secret. I'm saying, though, like, they, like, they've yeah. tr- like when they say that they were, like, were trying to keep like, things they secret of. They, no, like, it was the Atlanta the Atlanta Police Department that was trying mm-hmm. to keep this a secret. Mm-hmm. Klansmen were openly recruiting people and telling them there was going to be a race war, which I'm going to get into. I just want to know, why did they hold meetings in the woods? I can't tell you. I'm not a Klansman. <laughs> Major Griner had already received information that five of the murdered children knew each other. These kids were uh, Luby Gator, Aaron Wychi. I think, is that how it's pronounced, Liz? Wychi is what okay. I was saying. Um, Aaron Jackson Jr., Darren Glass, and Curtis Walker. Um, this committee realized that if these five boys knew one another, then Charles Sanders could have known all of them. And I'll get more into why they believe Charles Sanders might be behind the death of at least one of them. So this mentality led to a situation where two investigations into the murders were actually being conducted simultaneously. While the public investigation, which KDE spoke about, was mired in chaos and disorganization, and they pursued pretty much every lead they could think of. They employed psychics to try and help them find dead bodies. They entertained fantastic theories and suffered from a high level of ineptitude in their ranks. This secret investigation run by a committee of sober professionals trying to avert what they believed was going to be a race war focused very sharply and efficiently on its subject, which was the Ku Klux Klan and in particular, the very violent Sanders family. Blech. Yeah. So the Sanders family was the focus of the investigation. There were seven members of the family, all who had extensive criminal records, including Charles' wife, Sandra, who had been convicted on narcotics charges. Collectively, they had a criminal history that stretched back 35 years and included convictions for child molestation, murder, burglary, assault and battery, narcotics, and drunk driving. Um, According to the committee who is investigating them, they're basically the epitome of the violent, bigoted Southern Klan family. The patriarch is Carlton Sanders. And since 1951, when he was arrested on suspicion of molestation, he he acquired a string of more than 35 arrests for everything from simple assault to wife beating. 
So this was not a great family. And then Carlton Sanders also had a very distinct physical characteristic, which was a jagged scar on the left side of his neck. Of course he did. Which is the same scar Ruth Warren mentioned in her description of Luby Getter's presumed kidnapper. Basically, the committee was weighing all of the factors and consequences for this, and they avoided headlines and relied on more discreet tactics of trying to figure out what was going on. They kind of gathered evidence step by step and also had a few informants who were wearing wiretaps. So at one point, the committee's wiretap recorded a late night phone conversation with Charles Sanders um, negotiating the sale of M16 rifles at a cost of $25 each and fragmentation grenades at $50 a case. Mm. Um, He said, if you threw that motherfucker into a crowd, it would have to be someone you really wanted to get. Yeah, said the other voice. I suppose the Klan does shit like that. And Charles just answered, yoo-hoo. Yoo-hoo. Wow. Yeah. And then a couple, well, the next month, they also intercepted a conversation between two other members of the family, Terry and Don Sanders. Um, Basically, that ends with Terry saying, um, or, well... It ends with Don saying, I'll just give a buzz back and I might get out and ride around a little bit and I might come by there. Terry saying, go find you another little kid, another little kid. And Don replying, yeah, scope out some places. We'll see you later. Wow. Yeah. So when two Caucasian hairs were removed from the underclothes of the 15th victim, Charles Stevens, who was found murdered in a trailer park in East Point, a trailer park which was frequently visited by the Sanders brothers, the secret investigation shifted towards gathering fiber and hair evidence from the vehicles um, and from Charles Sanders' husky dog. To get hair samples from the dog, investigators claimed they were from a health agency and said they had come to take the dog away for shots. Lab tests were done on the dog hairs and carpet fibers, but results were apparently inconclusive. Interesting. But, uh, I'll tell you also why that happened. Um, As the evidence against the Sanders family grew and the climate in Atlanta turned nastier, the task force investigation continued, unaware of the progress being made by this secret committee. Um, Even as it narrowed in on the Sanders family, their uneasiness over the meaning of their discoveries turned into fear that people discovering the Klan was behind the murders would trigger not avert racial unrest in the city. So, according to multiple informants, 30-year-old Charles Sanders was extremely upset when 14-year-old Luby Getter, Getter, Geter, Getter, Geter, Geter, when 14-year-old Luby Geter backed a go-kart into his car. Sanders swore, I'm not making this up. Oh, no. Sanders swore, I'm going to kill that black bastard. I'm going to strangle him with my dick. Oh, (gasps) my God. Several Ugh. weeks later, Geeter was found dead, strangled to death in a wooded area in the city. Ugh. And you can't tell if it was with a dick or not, but I'm sure it's safe to assume. Yeah. So Ew. a month after his body was found, a police informant identified by uh, codename BJ Jones. Oh, God. Yeah. Phoned his contact in the Atlanta borough of borough the atlanta bureau of police services intelligence division and said he had information about the child murders particularly the killing of luby geeter so the call stunned his contact um, because jones who had a strong record of providing reliable information had been one of their best informants for 18 years he said in 78 or 79 he had met charles sanders um and charles had like immediately tried to recruit Jones into the clan because of his expertise in explosives. And then Jones kind of dismissed the way Sanders was acting as clan bravado and bottled bottled up bitterness until the summer of 1980 when he and Sanders visited the home of a man named Odell Simpson, one of Sanders' friends. As Sanders parked his car across the street from Simpson's home, Luby Gator and another boy, Earl Lee Tyrell, were playing with Simpson's son. And that is when he accidentally ran into his car with the go-kart. Wow. And that's when he did the, I'm going to choke that boy with my dick. Yep. On Geeter's body were dog hairs thought to belong to a Siberian husky. Wow. At the trial, the prosecution did not reveal 
Charles Sanders owned a Siberian Husky. Mm. So the same man, um, BJ Jones, reached out to Eleven Alive during their coverage, except they referred to him as Larry. <laughs> Safe. Yeah. And he basically contacted them when they reopened the case because he was like, I have this information. I'm upset this case got closed. I want to tell people before I die. In the late 70s, he lived a double life as a Klan member during the top secret KKK investigation. Wow. But said he didn't believe in their ideology. He was just an informant. He said, as a white man in the 60s and 70s, he was disturbed by the racism and worked as a confidential informant throughout the years on different cases. Also, the Black Klansman. Yes. <laughs> of all the investigations he was part of, Larry said this one stuck with him. Um, in his words, the Klan was the Klan's wasn't after girls. They were after males because mm -hmm. males could cause a lot of problem when they got big, when they growed up. He testified that Klansmen tried to recruit him to help on the child murders and was advised that the KKK was creating an uprising among the blacks, that they were killing the children, that they are going to do one each month until things blow up. Two months after the investigation started, the Klansmen were brought in for questioning and asked to take a polygraph, which they passed. Fibers and other physical evidence tested by police could also not be linked back to the KKK. According to official documents, that's when the case was closed. Based on Eleven Alive archived reports, the audio recordings of the wiretaps were destroyed after Williams was convicted. What the mm. fuck? Mm -mm -mm. Larry said he never witnessed any violent acts, but overheard plans to kill a black child, at least one. And as for reopening the case, last year he said he thinks nothing new will surface, and he's disappointed there was never a conviction in any of the children's cases, and said politicians should have done more to identify other potential killers. Wow. And one observation, which I believe you kind of mentioned... Um, that arises when people speculate if there were white people committing the murders is how they could go unnoticed in black neighborhoods. Mm, right. Larry said Klan members would blend in as postal workers, carpenters, milkmen, and other professions. They were men with typical jobs, jobs that could make them essentially invisible in and these that's neighborhoods. That's terrifying still yep. to this day. Oh, yeah. Yep. With, are you kidding? I mean, people Oof. that the KKK is still... Still oh. thriving, oh, yeah. unfortunately. It sure and is. Yeah, it's still... You don't know who the fuck's a part of it. It yep. only just recently got labeled a terrorist organization. Yep. Fucking finally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, recently is in, like, 2016. Fucking finally. Which means, like, it probably isn't anymore because of who's in office. Fuck yep. you guys. <laughs> so anyways, that's another possibility based on an investigation that was... Heavily looked into. Which is and so then, wild. as soon as Williams was convicted, not even on the Atlanta child murders, but just vaguely connected to right. them, they destroyed the evidence as much as of they could. Of course. Of course they did. Did he kill all those children? No. I probably don't not. So. I don't think so. Um, I don't believe so. I think so. he right. may have killed the adults, and it was just a perfect little scapegoat. He may yeah. have. He may have. And, you know... I don't believe he is wholly innocent, and I do not believe he is wholly guilty. Right. Agreed. It's feel. just such a long, crazy, like, dramatic case. Like, there's so many twists and turns. Mm -hmm. And if you guys want to learn more about it, there's, like, so many different podcasts, books, articles, TV shows. Mindhunter season two. Oh, my gosh. That's the first thing I wanted to bring up. I'm obsessed <laughs> with Mindhunter. <laughs> and I feel like they did a really good job. I still haven't watched it, but it needs to. Oh, it's good. They did a really good job of it. Good. So. As always, thanks for listening. As always, follow us on the socials. Yes. All of, of them. <laughs> All of them. I will kill you. As always, uh, leave us a five-star review. Because why not? What else are you doing with your life? Totally. Nothing. Listening to this podcast, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Go on that little purple app right now, the podcast app. And you just click that little five-star button while you're listening, and then you mm -hmm. just keep it moving. Exactly. That's all you need. Five-star review, and let us know your favorite pasta recipe. <gasps> yeah. Yes. It's still chilly in Atlanta. We need some comfort food. That's true. Oh, I thought that was like a... I thought you were doing some, like, funny, like, a... Guess what we're going to be doing soon? Pasta recipe. Oh, yeah. Wow, it's interesting coming. segue, it's Katie. Pasta recipe, if you've got a creepy pasta recipe, 
email that to us. Don't leave it in a review. If you have a if you have a creepypasta recipe you want to give us, email it. Conspiracypod at gmail.com. Yes. Hint, hint. Wink, 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 wink. wink. Tug, tug. <laughs> oh, no. On that note. On that note. <laughs> oof. Oof. Stay spooky, guys. Thank Always. You. Thanks for listening. We'll Bye. 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 <laughs> I was late on that one. Anybody I would like to live. I just want to do God's will. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land.